only complexity he's adding is the the with the lights out. It's less dangerous. Here we are now. Entertain us. That's novel. I can't think of anyone who sang, and he does it with all of his songs. But Kurt Cobain's style was to basically sing almost like a uh, a saw, like a. <laughs> Welcome to the Echo Spire Song Destruct podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements, and we evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. So I have with me today, Ryan. Say hello, Ryan. Hello, Brian. And uh, I'm Wesley, your host, and today we are analyzing uh, Strawberry Fields Forever, 1967, as well as Smells Like Teen Spirit, 1991. We are going to compare and contrast to sort of uh, tease out the, the theme of this show, which is titled Writing an Angst Anthem. Hmm. So we have two... Yes. Mm-hmm. What, what do you have to say about that, Ryan? Uh, I would love to hear how uh, Strawberry Fields is angsty. So, I, I, I... so of course, uh, 1967's version of angst differs from Smells Like Teen Spirit because it was more introspective versus Kurt Cobain and the generation in 1991 tended to throw things at the wall and scream and moan and complain. So it was a grunge era versus what would be characterized as a psychedelic art rock. Clearly angsty. <laughs> So a couple of facts. I just want to present the uh, listeners so that you understand some background, some context, the impact of these songs. So Strawberry Fields Forever actually charted at number eight on the U.S. billboards. It sold Sgt. Pepper 18 million certified copies. It's the 25th largest selling album of all time. Thriller being number one at 47 million certified sales. And over on the other side of the equation, Smells Like Teen Spirit, that sold... Ooh, close to 30 million records. So it's kind of neck and neck with Sgt. Pepper. And Sgt. Pepper has a 30-year head start. Hold on, hold on, it, hold on. Yeah. Are you crediting the the first singles, um, which would be Strawberry Fields, and then Penny Lane, I believe was the B-side, as, as the, uh, you know, for selling Sgt. Pepper. But they were, you're not, you're not saying that Magical Mystery Tour, you're saying Sgt. Pepper. Okay, correct. I got you. I got you. Because Strawberry Fields was released as a single ahead of Sgt. Pepper. Right, yeah, yeah. So it, in effect, sold Sgt. Pepper, not Magical Mystery Tour. Interesting fact, right? And probably should have uh, been on Sgt. Pepper, in my opinion. Should have been. Yeah, okay. should have been. Maybe. And S- Smells Like Teen Spirit, as big as an impact as it had, it still only charted number six on the Billboard Hot 100. So again, this is one lesson I want the viewers to take away right off the bat, which is, hey doesn't matter how big of an impact the song has it might not actually be charting on the mainstream charts because that's a different audience than necessarily the niche audience that beatles targeted or nirvana targeted for their eras but culturally they still had huge impacts much bigger impacts than who was ever number one at that time which was Inglebert humpernick or whatever his name was and Dink. 67 but there's a difference between, you know, writing something influential versus writing something that sells. So let's just take that, put that into the treasure chest of lessons to be learned on this show so far. Okay, 
I want to move into the first phase of how we begin to psychoanalyze these songs. I want to start with what I call the blueprint phase. Now, this is going to follow sort of a building a house model. So I got the blueprint phase. I got the foundation. Then I go into the mechanicals, you know, like your electricity and your plumbing. Although for our purposes, it's going to be talking about the arrangements, the types of instruments that they use, the types of engineering that uh, was involved. We get into the finishes of the song. The finishes are going to be like different novelties that occur with each element. So, for instance, with Strawberry Fields, every chorus increases in intensity. So we're going to highlight how that actually adds to the arc of the storytelling. And again, this all comes back to writing. So we are not looking at these from any other perspective other than a writer and how to tell an effective story. The last element is going to be open house. In other words, you're selling your house. You got to put some perfume. You're in really there. selling this house analogy. Okay. <laughs> Light a candle. Yeah, take it all the way. Okay. Foundation. So first phase. Yeah. Blueprint. First blueprint. Phase. Blueprint. Okay, blueprint. Before you lay the foundation, you got to design the song. We're talking about the structure. So Strawberry Fields follows a very conventional but powerful and meaningful chorus. It leads off with the chorus. Now, it has an effective intro, which is an abbreviated verse. That little flute intro is actually an abbreviated verse, mm -hmm. but then it smacks you with the chorus, right. verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It ends with the chorus. So it's an effective uh, use of the structure for the purpose of writing an anthem because they are starting out with what matters most, which is Strawberry Fields Forever at the end of the day starts out calm. At the end, it ends forcefully. It becomes dominant. Whereas at the beginning, John Lennon's kind of pondering, what does it all mean? By the end, the answer is Strawberry Fields Forever. In other words, youth forever, forever young. George Martin effectively kind of comes in there and adds more to this, which we'll get into the mechanicals. But right. the blueprint of the song, I think they knew what they were going for right off the bat. What say you? Well, they definitely couldn't have pulled this off without George Martin. I don't know. I'm sure uh, up until that point, they never spent... From what I know about Strawberry Fields, it's a combination of maybe three takes. Three versions, yeah. Three, okay. And they even had to, I think, slow the tape down and um, all that junk, all yeah. that stuff that nobody can do or nobody at the time could do uh, until they did it. Whether to call Strawberry Fields an anthem, I don't know. But we can go into that well, if you want. I, I mean, I've never thought about yeah. it that way. I've thought of, like, even though I like Strawberry Fields better, even uh, All You Need Is Love is more of an anthem than Strawberry Fields. It, in my mind, it's not an anthem but you said that i'll tie it in at the end why i believe it is a true anthem okay. but uh staying in the blueprint phase here i just want to compare it to smells like teen spirit for a second so you think smells like teen spirit starts off with the iconic intro of that riff which the whole song is layered on f b flat g sharp c sharp the whole song yeah yeah never breaks it never changes that. yeah what they do do effectively is they started out purely on that guitar riff, understanding to the uh, listener that the whole thing is going to ride on that rail. So I characterize this mood in the blueprint phase. If you're a writer sitting down trying to write this song, you're already thinking, well, it's going to be energetic. Once you layer on the, a little bit of the lyrics, you begin to understand, well, it's going to be threatening. This is going to be angst-ridden. And again, I just want to tie the two songs together and say the, another lesson we can throw into the treasure chest is the power of an iconic intro. How many times have we written songs and you're not thinking about the intro? But that is one of the things that stands apart with any big single that kind of um, reaches across many different types of audience. It's going to be packaged from beginning to end with a bow tie. I want to move into the foundation phase for now. So foundation we're laying out the chord structure. 
we're figuring out the basic melody. Now, in Strawberry Fields, there's a couple of things I want to mention that kind of come to me as novelty items. If you look at the way that John Lennon structures the song, which I'm going to give you a transposed version of this, it starts on E. Let me take you down because we're going B minor 7, Strawberry Fields, C sharp 7, nothing is real, and A, nothing to get C sharp, hung about, A, Strawberry Fields, forever E. That's the basic chorus. And two, two things to, that I want to point out. He uses 2-4 timing in there when he hits the A. Mm. Nothing to get hung of about. Course. That's 2 four timing. Of course he does. And then... Of course he does. He and to. then on the on the chorus, Strawberry Fields Forever, that's actually 3-4 timing. Hmm. And everything else is in 4-4 four, four timing. Now, one of the lessons I'm going to take away from this is when you are writing, let your, and especially if you're writing an anthem, let your light shine. So you want to demonstrate your core competency, which John Lennon's was always playing with time signature and playing with chords and playing with cool melodies. I'll get to the melody in a second. But chorus being better than the, the verse. Let's just let's yeah, just be absolutely. honest. <laughs> it is. It is. But let's talk about the verse for a second. So transpose because this is in a weird key because of the the, the tapes slowing down everything. But in the verse, it goes B. Living is easy with B. Eyes closed, C-sharp minor, misunderstanding, B, all you see, A. Right. And then A, B, E, C-sharp minor. It does a little box there. Pretty conventional. But if you go over to the other side, Smells Like Teen Spirit, obviously, they, <laughs> Kurt Cobain chose a very simple four-chord structure throughout the entire uh, uh, song. What he does choose to do at the foundation level is he chose to phrase in a punctuated way. Now, if I begin to think about any other singer-songwriter before Kurt Cobain, no one really comes to mind, maybe the Pixies, but his entire approach to singing was always punctuated. I would just say that on the foundation, if you were to look and see what kind of melody he's plucking, he's singing on the root note and on the fifth note, which are basically the power chords. If you're looking at a G power chord, it's G and D. Right. Very... There's there's nothing complex about it. The only complexity he's adding is the the with the lights out. It's less dangerous. Here we are now. Entertain us. That's novel. I can't think of anyone who sang, and he does it with all of his songs. But Kurt Cobain's style was to basically sing almost like a uh, a saw, like a <laughs> something of that nature. Well, versus okay. I would just say, if you go back over the, to the other side of the fence with Strawberry Fields, John Lennon, his melody is all over the place. He, he looks like Paul McCartney compared to Kurt Cobain because he's not afraid to let the melody drift here and there. It's ethereal. Where he's adding novelty is not going to be on his phrasing, but where he's adding it is the notes he chooses to sing on. He's plucking out ninths. He even manages to sing a dissonant G sharp over a G when he sings... Uh, Strawberry fields, nothing is real. When he's singing that, he's singing a dissonant note one half step up from the root note, which makes no sense, right. but he gets away with it because he's John Lennon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, in both songs, technically interesting chords in both, even though it Smells Like Teen Spirit is four chords, it's not, you know, the four chords. It's a good four the, chords. The four chords aren't <laughs> in the same key. It's at least, it's, it's, so it's harmonically interesting 
despite I've never really studied the melody to Smells Like Teen Spirit, but you're saying it's a lot of fifths and things like that. But when you throw in the interesting harmonics of just the, the harmony of just the having four chords repeating that aren't in the same key as power chords, it's going to create interesting things. You know that John Lennon was going out of his way to go out to go out on a, <laughs> engineer it. No, to go out on a limb. No pun intended because of all the tree imagery. But, you know, he was just trying to take it to the he was trying to go too far with this one. I think um, he was just saying, well, how far can we take this? And even the fact that the Absolutely. first three chords make no sense, but he made them make sense with the melody. Oh, let's do a two four measure or a three four measure here. I think that was that kind of thing just came naturally to him. Well, with mechanicals, so again, we're talking about the engineering, the arrangement. Strawberry Fields is characterized by use of synthesizers, flutes, uh, brass, trumpets, sitar, and I would call it orchestral drums. Again, this is George Martin over-engineering the drum part, but they have all kinds. If you listen to it, it almost sounds like an orchestra drum part. Ringo's uh, little snare fills. Looking through the lens of writing, if you are John Lennon, you know that you have this team behind you that can bring that can dress up your little folk song. So he knows as a writer that this thing could grow rather quickly as soon as he gets into a studio. If you're a writer just trying to write for country music or some other rock star available today, you never know. You can never afford to dress it up. You almost have to leave it as bare bones. It's one thing that I'm always thinking about when somebody's trying to sell professionally in the rock and roll or even the country arena, how would you think, what do you know about this subject on How should they leave the song should they leave it as plain as possible or should they dress it up a little bit and try to suggest, you know, a theme? I always think you shouldn't write for the radio, right? You should write what comes natural, but I think you have to, if you want to be in the business, I think you have to then produce it to sound somewhat like the radio currently. Well, you never want to be chasing the trends, right? But what you want to do is mm -hmm. you can't be so far out of the ballpark. Lesson to be learned from mechanicals is as you just mentioned you have to dress the part so if you're 1967 and if you were writing this on spec strawberry fields you're writing this on spec and you want to sell it to the beatles you would probably dress it up as much as you possibly could if you had access to the synthesizers you would dress it up in that if you're in 1991 and you want to sell a song to kurt cobain you got to dress it up if you're trying to write a song you can't really afford, I don't think anymore, there's just too much segmentation. You can't really count on being the next Kurt Cobain, but you can count on writing a song and attempting to get it to the next Kurt Cobain, whoever, whoever that would be in today's market, whatever niche you're in. But it's easier to sell a song. I want to move to the finishes portion. This is where we're getting into your third draft of lyrics as a writer. Strawberry Fields Forever, John Lennon basically touched on the theme of, hey, I'm going to be indecisive in the lyric, inconclusive, but it's going to rise to be a dominant feeling. Every single verse, every single chorus changes arrangement. The first verse starts with guitar. The last verse has no music other than uh, trumpets. Right. And then, of course, Paul McCartney comes in there with his layered melody or his, his layered harmony for that final chorus. But it's all about building that architecture, becoming more complex as the song goes on. And again, this is a lesson. Always layer. So yes. If you're a writer, yes. you always got to layer as you progress through the song. Well, yeah. A more modern example of that would be what Max Martin says. He's always layering. You got to introduce something new every chorus. 
even every 10 seconds clock is ticking but i feel like the I, well okay i feel like the choruses are the most important so you want the second chorus to Indeed. be you know somewhat of a step up from the first in some way i would say add a alternate melody back there doing something this is something that um butch vig and kurt cobain and nirvana got wrong because smells like teen spirit doesn't layer it does have an outro where he consistently says a denial, a denial, a denial. And of course, that builds to the Kurt Cobain exclamation at the end where the music fades out and just his voice is there standing. Bottom line, you want to layer, but you want to tell a story, not just with your lyrics, not just with your music, but with your engineering choices, with your finishes. So we're, we're in the open house phase. Somebody's spraying candle mist, and uh, they, they've put a reef on the front door. They're ready to show this thing. We're, we're basically building the mix. Now, let me talk a little bit about the mix. I'm not talking about the mix of sound. I'm talking about the mix of ideas. So there's a limited spectrum. There has to be some accentuated elements, and there has to be other elements that are kept to the background. When you're writing a song, it's not necessarily going to be the lyrics that write your song. What I think writes uh, Strawberry Fields is George Martin's involvement. With, without those arrangements, this song is a throwaway. You might even say that, because I, I kind of agree with you, it might not have ever made it. Like, they almost had to use production as a crutch because it was sort of an odd song. And just the fact that it was such a radical departure, and there isn't anything this extreme on... Sergeant Pepper. Correct. Maybe happiness is a warm gun is downwind from strawberry. Fields. Yeah. And, but also different because it's a Rhapsody or whatever. It doesn't ever repeat. But in yeah. general, he's like, I feel like Lennon was smart enough to go, okay, I've, I've kind of explored that. Done I've it. done that. I'm not going to do it again. Now let's hop over the other fence and talk about Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's open house. I think what tells the story, what it absolutely relies on is he nailed the lyric. So you're asking me about the lyric and the finishes. Oh, well, yeah. Ultimately, yeah, he did. It, it, it's three particular lyrics. It's load up on guns and rhyming contagious with dangerous. That's, that's uh, your I favorite lyric? No, I'm not saying it's my favorite. I'm just saying that it hinges. Without those three lyrics, this house doesn't sound. Uh, no, it, no. It, there's a linchpin lyric to this song. And, and we're talking about this being an anthem. Here we are now, entertain us. Because that's the line that made sense. Like MTV generation is new, entertain us. Now, the thing is, is that it also has to come through Kurt Cobain's voice. Kanye West recently said that he believes, and he's one to talk because the guy is probably one of the best-selling artists of all time at this point. He believes that it's not his talent, it's his voice Who? that Kanye? sells records. Uh, Kanye West. I'm a big yeah. Kanye fan. I, I agree with that. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that it's true. Kanye West has a great voice for the particular kind of music that he writes. John Lennon had the same thing. For introspective music, his voice works well. It wouldn't work well on a Mariah Carey song. <laughs> Kurt Cobain <laughs> knew his this voice. This is the stating the obvious portion of the... That's the thing, is that as a writer, if you are trying to write spec, and that's some of the listeners of this podcast are going to care about writing on spec. Right. If you're trying to... You have to kind of begin to think as an engineer in terms of the choices you're making and the way that you choose to phrase a particular lyric or the way that you, the, the, the vocal range that you want to write, that's going to have an impact on who can buy the song. Right. These are just some of the things I want to sprinkle in as we discuss in retrospect some of these big songs in history. I also want to talk about just how you can use the information to hone in on your own particular songwriting craft. 
All right. So last phase of the show is I want to talk about kind of what came before these songs and what came after. Well, how did they make their mark on history? So I want to just start with Strawberry Fields. It's the baby of Beach Boys Good Vibrations, which came probably six months prior to Lennon writing Strawberry Fields. He borrowed heavily from the arrangement. He just made a darker version of Good Vibrations. Theme-wise, he didn't borrow from anyone else in the music industry at the time other than his own songwriting partner, Paul McCartney's Yesterday. It's the same theme when you think about the kind of romanticizing of yesteryear and, you, you know, something lost, although he made it more metaphysical. It's not losing a woman. It's losing innocence. So at the beginning of the show, you asked me, is this an anthem? Yes, it is an anthem, because downstream from this event, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which Strawberry Fields helped to sell, downstream from all of this is the hyper-segmentation of music. Before this period, there's one chart capturing Motown sound, capturing pop, probably even capturing uh, uh, the crooners and you know uh, big band right. music. That was a big bang moment in 67, due to the drugs, due to the culture, due to the advent of new technologies we had synthesizers we had everything you need to create all the music you have today was available in 1968 you're saying the charts splintered yeah. off the mass splintering it's not like it's going to ever stop right. splintering if you can get just 10,000 people to like your music and to buy something from you pretty much make a career off of 10,000 fans. If you take that into account, it's almost infinite the number of genres that we're going to have. And I wouldn't even, even attempt to begin to classify them. And I don't think the radio charts are going to try to keep up with tracking them all. But the point is, is that there's an audience for whatever type of music you want to write. Okay. Well, so, so tell me about Teen Spirit's influence because yeah. obviously it changed everything okay so here's the deal nirvana's everything that came from nirvana i could attribute to the entire alternative music scene now i'm not saying that they inspired nirvana they were everything was already in motion from your pearl jams to your smashing pumpkins to whatever right. but nirvana made it accessible to music execs and to mainstream music fans right that it, it made it make sense Kurt Cobain was a good spokesperson in terms of he, he was quick to tell the uh, the press he was good at interview. And he said, look, we're just writing Beatles music with grunge, right. distorted guitars. Yeah. So just to put a little bow tie on it, ultimately, th these are two anthems. If nothing else, doesn't mean that they are written to be anthems, because I don't think either one of them attempted to write an anthem. But they both became anthems because they both plugged into or were able to spinal tap the collective consciousness of their generation. And if you look at the lyrics, they're very similar in terms of being very indecisive and angsty. Right. So that's why these kind of surface as anthems. Now I call them angst ridden anthems. There's all kinds of anthems out there. You could say that Wang Chung, uh, everybody have fun tonight. That's an anthem for party music, not for angst. Yeah, Kurt loved opposites, right? So he mm. would just, when he didn't know what else to say, I think he would just throw opposites. It's all over, never mind. Probably yes. in utero as well. But even in um, Smells Like Teen Spirit, I'm worse. I think he said, I'm worse yeah, at, at what, what I, I do, do best. best. Yeah, and like, right. uh, that was very, he's kind of saying nothing on purpose, but it's cool. I mean, it's it's great poetry. 
you know. Yes, and he, uh, kind of part of the finishes of the song, he likes to rely on contrast. So he goes from loud to very quiet on his transitions from chorus to, chorus to verse or whatever. Right. That, again, irony or the use of dynamics, that is a big part of songwriting or writing any story, be it on film or uh, fiction or nonfiction. It's all about contrast. But I do want to say that next week's episode, check this out. This is what I have planned. We're going to discuss Air That I Breathe by The Hollies mm. and, and Creep. By Radiohead, Tom York, 1993 <laughs> versus 1972. Are you always going to do a, a, a 60s and a 90s, or what's Not the deal? always. I might do a rap song compared to a rock and roll song, but there will always be some kind of pivotal relationship between the songs. With these particular two, you're looking at uh, Albert Hammond actually wrote it. It was covered by the Hollies. Albert Hammond famously is the dad of the Strokes guitar. Oh, player. yeah, Albert Hammond Jr., Yep, he wrote, uh, what was it, uh, Never Rains in California. On that same album, he had Air That I Breathe, which the Hollies liked. They covered, and they uh, made it much more popular than he ever would have. And, of course, 21 years later, Creep basically samples it. Not really, but they admitted to sampling it on a TV show to be funny, and then they got sued. So <laughs> now they have to pay royalties I all didn't, the time. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's what we're going to discuss, but uh, I do want to thank the listeners for listening. And again, just to remind the listeners, this whole podcast is in support of Echo Spire, which is a project I hope to release in 2020 that will gamify the writing experience for songwriters of any genre. So there's more to be uh, told on that front as I get closer to releasing the technology. But thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.